Chapter 44 of Varney the Vampire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Varney the Vampire. Volume 1. By Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter 44. The Removal from the Hall. THE NIGHT WATCH, AND THE ALARM. Mrs. Bannerworth's consent having been already given to the removal, she said at once, when appealed to, that she was quite ready to go at any time her children thought expedient. Upon this, Henry sought the admiral, and told him as much, at the same time adding, My sister feared that we should have considerable trouble in the removal, but I have convinced her that such will not be the case as we are by no means overburdened with cumbrous property. "'Cumbrous property,' said the admiral. "'Why, what do you mean? "'I beg leave to say that when I took the house, "'I took the table and chairs with it. "'Damn it, what good do you suppose an empty house is to me?' "'The tables and chairs?' "'Yes, I took the house just as it stands. "'Don't try and bamboozle me out of it. I tell you, you've nothing to move but yourselves and immediate personal effects. I was not aware, Admiral, that that was your plan. Well, then, now you are. Listen to me. I've circumvented the enemy too often not to know how to get up a plot. Jack and I have managed it all. Tomorrow evening, after dark, and before the moon's got high enough to throw any light, you and your brother and Miss Flora and your mother We'll come out of the house, and Jack and I will lead you where you're to go to. There's plenty of furniture where you're going, and so you'll get off free, without anybody knowing anything about it. Well, Admiral, I've said it before, and it is the unanimous opinion of us all, that everything should be left to you. You have proved yourself too good a friend to us for us to hesitate at all in obeying your commands. Arrange everything, I pray you, according to your wishes and feelings, and you will find there shall be no cavilling on our parts. That's right. There's nothing like giving a command to some one person. There's no good done without. Now I'll manage it all. Mind you, seven o'clock tomorrow evening, everything is to be ready, and you will all be prepared to leave the hall. It shall be so. Who's that giving such a thundering ring at the gate? Nay, I know not. We have few visitors and no servants, so I must even be my own gate-porter. Henry walked to the gate, and having opened it, a servant in a handsome livery stepped a pace or two into the garden. Well, said Henry, is Mr. Henry Bannerworth within, or Admiral Bell? Both cried the admiral. I'm Admiral Bell, and this is Mr. Henry Bannerworth. What do you want with us, you damned gingerbread-looking flunky? Sir, my master desires his compliments, his very best compliments, and he wants to know how you are after your flurry. What? After your, uh, uh, flurry and excitement. Who is your master? said Henry. "'Sir Francis Varney.' "'The devil,' said the admiral. "'If that don't beat all the impudence I ever came near. "'Our flurry. 
Ah, I like that fellow. Just go and tell him. No, no, said Henry, interposing. Send back no message. Say to your master, fellow, that Mr. Henry Bannerworth feels that not only has he no claim to Sir Francis Varney's courtesy, but that he should rather be without it. Oh, ha, said the footman, adjusting his collar. Very good. This seems a damned old-fashioned outlandish place of yours. Any ale? Now shiver my hulks, said the admiral. Hush, hush, said Henry. Who knows, but there may be a design in this. We have no ale. Oh, I am dry as dust, by God. What does old Commodore say? Any message, my ancient Greek? No, thank you, said the admiral. Bless you, nothing. What did you give for that waistcoat, damn you? Ha! You're a clever fellow. Ah, the old gentleman's ill. However, I'll take back his compliments, and that he's much obliged at Sir Francis's condescension. At the same time, I suppose I may place in my eye what I may get out of either of you without hindering me seeing my way back. Ha! Adieu, adieu. Bravo, said the admiral. That's it. Go it. Go now for it. Damn it, it is a do. The admiral's calmness during the latter part of the dialogue arose from the fact that, over the flunky shoulder and at some distance off, he saw Jack Pringle taking off his jacket and rolling up his sleeves in that deliberate sort of way that seemed to imply a determination of setting about some species of work that combined the pleasant with the useful. Jack executed many nods to and winks at the livery servant, and jerked his thumb likewise in the direction of a pump near at hand, in a manner that spoke as plainly as possible that John was to be pumped upon. And now the conference was ended, and Sir Francis's messenger turned to go. But Jack Pringle bothered him completely, for he danced round him in such a singular manner that, turn which way he would, there stood Jack Pringle, in some grotesque attitude, intercepting him. And so he edged him on till he got him to the pump. Jack, said the Admiral. Aye, aye, sir. Don't pump on that fellow now. Aye, aye, sir. Give us a hand. Jack laid hold of him by the two ears, and holding him under the pump, kicked his shins until he completely gathered himself beneath the spout. It was in vain that he shouted, Murder! Help! Fire! Thieves! Jack was inexorable, and the admiral pumped. Jack turned the fellow's head about in a very scientific manner, so as to give him a fair dose of hydropathic treatment, and in a few minutes never was human being more thoroughly saturated with moisture than was Sir Francis Varney's servant. He had left off hallooing for aid, for he found that whenever he did so, Jack held his mouth under the spout, which was decidedly unpleasant. So, with a patience that looked like heroic fortitude, he was compelled to wait until the admiral was tired of pumping. "'Very good,' at length he said. "'Now, Jack, for fear this fellow catches cold, be so good as to get a horsewhip and see him off the premises with it. Aye, aye, sir, said Jack. And I say, old fellow, you can take back all our blessed compliments now and say you've been flurried a little yourself. And if so be as you came here as dry as dust, you go back as wet as a mop. Won't it do to kick him out, sir? 
Very well, as you please, Jack. Then here goes, and Jack proceeded to kick the shivering animal from the garden with a vehemence that soon convinced him of the necessity of getting out of it as quickly as possible. How it was that Sir Francis Varney, after that fearful race he had had, got home again across the fields, free from all danger, and back to his own house, from whence he sent so cool and insolent a message they could not conceive. But such must certainly be the fact, somehow or another, he had escaped all danger, and with a calm insolence peculiar to the man, he had no doubt adopted the present mode of signifying as much to the Bannerworths. The insolence of his servant was, no doubt, a matter of prearrangement with that individual. However, he might have set about it con amore. As for the termination of the adventure, that, of course, had not been at all calculated upon. But, like most tools of other people's insolence or ambition, the insolence of the underling had received both his own punishment and his master's. We know quite enough of Sir Francis Varney to feel assured that he would rather consider it as a good jest than otherwise of his footman, so that with the suffering he endured at the Bannerworths, and the want of sympathy he was likely to find at home, that individual had certainly nothing to congratulate himself upon but the melancholy reminiscence of his own cleverness. But were the mob satisfied with what had occurred in the churchyard? They were not and that night was to witness the perpetration of a melancholy outrage such as the history of the time presents no parallel to. The finding of a brick in the coffin of the butcher, instead of the body of that individual, soon spread as a piece of startling intelligence all over the place, and the obvious deduction that was drawn from the circumstance seemed to be that the deceased butcher was unquestionably a vampire, and out upon some expedition at the very time when his coffin was searched. How he had originally got out of that receptacle for the dead was certainly a mystery, but the story was none the worse for that. Indeed, an ingenious individual found a solution for that part of the business, for, as he said, nothing was more natural, when anybody died who was capable of becoming a vampire, than for other vampires who knew it to dig him up and lay him out in the cold beams of the moonlight until he acquired the same sort of vitality they themselves possessed, and joined their horrible fraternity. In lieu of a better explanation, and, after all, it was no bad one, this theory was generally received, and, with a shuddering horror, people asked themselves, if the whole of the churchyard were excavated, how many coffins would be found tenantless by the dead which had been supposed, by the simple-minded people, to inhabit them. The presence, however, of a body of dragoons towards evening effectually prevented any renewed attack upon the sacred precincts of the churchyard, and it was a strange and startling thing to see that country town under military surveillance and sentinels posted at its principal buildings. This measure smothered the vengeance of the crowd, and ensured for a time the safety of Sir Francis Varney, for no considerable body of persons could assemble for the purpose of attacking his house again without being followed, so such a step was not attempted. It had so happened, however, that on that very day the funeral of a young man was to have taken place, who had put up for a time at the same inn where Admiral Bell was first introduced to the reader. He had become seriously ill, and, after a few days of indisposition which had puzzled the country practitioners, breathed his last. 
He was to have been buried in the village churchyard on the very day of the riot and confusion incidental to the exhumation of the coffin of the butcher. Probably from that circumstance we may deduce the presence of the clergymen and canonicals at the period of the riot. When it was found that so disorderly a mob possessed the churchyard, the idea of burying the stranger that day was abandoned. But still, all would have gone on quietly as regarded him, had it not been for the folly of one of the chambermaids at the tavern. This woman, with all the love of gossip incidental to her class, had, from the first, entered so fully into all the particulars concerning vampires, that she fairly might be considered to be a little deranged on that head. Her imagination had been so worked upon that she was in an unfit state to think of anything else, and if ever upon anybody a stern and revolting superstition was calculated to produce dreadful effects, it was upon this woman. The town was tolerably quiet, the presence of the soldiery had frightened some and amused others, and no doubt the night would have passed off serenely had she not suddenly rushed into the streets and with bewildered accents and frantic gestures shouted, a vampire! A vampire! A vampire! These words soon collected a crowd around her, and then, with screaming accents, which would have been quite enough to convince any reflecting person that she had actually gone distracted, upon that point she cried, Come into the house! Come into the house! Come into the house! Look upon the dead body! That should have been in its grave! It's fresher now than on the day on which it died, and there's a color in its cheeks! A vampire! A vampire! A vampire! Heaven save us from a vampire! The strange, infuriated, maniacal manner in which these words were uttered produced an astonishingly excited effect among the mob. Several women screamed, and some few fainted. The torch was laid again to the altar of popular feeling, and the fierce flame of superstition burnt brightly and fiercely. Some twenty or thirty persons, with shouts and exclamations, rushed into the inn, while the woman who had created the disturbance still continued to rave, tearing her hair, and shrieking at intervals until she fell exhausted upon the pavement. Soon, from a hundred throats, rose that dreadful cry of, A vampire! A vampire! The alarm was given throughout the whole town. The bugles of the military sounded. There was a clash of arms. The shrieks of women, although the premonitory symptoms of such a riot was not likely to be quelled without bloodshed and considerable disaster. It is truly astonishing the effect which one weak or vicious-minded person can produce upon a multitude. Here was a woman whose opinion would have been accounted valueless upon the most commonplace subject, and whose word would not have passed for twopence setting a whole town by the ears by force of nothing but her sheer brutal ignorance. It is a notorious physiological fact that, after four or five days, or even a week, the bodies of many persons assume an appearance of freshness, such as might have been looked for in vain immediately after death. It is one of the most insidious processes of that decay which appears to regret its offensive fingers to mar the lines where beauty lingers. But what did the chambermaid know of physiology? Probably she would have asked if it was anything good to eat, and so, of course, having her head full of vampires, she must needs produce so lamentable a scene of confusion, the results of which we almost sicken at detailing. End of chapter 44
Recording by Roger Moline.